Good morning, everyone. The gospel reading is from Matthew. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. People do not light a lamp and put it under the bushel basket. Rather, they put it on a lampstand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let our light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Please join me in prayer. Lord, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm going to start by asking you all a question. So if you have a guess, uh, just shout it out. It's time for audience participation. How many times do you think salt is mentioned in the Bible? Seven? 17. 17. 27. 27. 77. I know, right? Okay, so the answer is 41. You're welcome. <laughs> because you never know when this kind of trivia will come in handy, right? But um, I looked it up because I was curious about why Jesus was using salt as a metaphor for the people of God. And the fact that it's used 41 times tells me, kind of in Bible language, that salt is really important. But I always wonder why. So what's so special about salt? Thinking about salt reminds me of when I had just found out I have celiac disease about 12 years ago. And in order to eliminate the ingredients that make me feel bad, I had to start doing more of the cooking. And my husband, Corey, had been the chief cook in our family up to that time, due both to skill and interest. So it was a pretty bumpy road there for a while. When I was trying out different gluten-free recipes, it seemed like every recipe called for an ingredient that I had never heard of before. And most of them use salt, but it seemed like each recipe called for a different kind of salt. Now, I'm probably way later to this game than most of you, but I had no idea there were so many different kinds of salt. Table salt, iodized salt, kosher salt, sea salt. What other kinds of salt am I missing? Pink Himalayan salt. Smoked salt. Truffle salt. Okay, that's a new one for me. Rock salt. Yeah, because I was just going to ask, are there any kinds of salt that we use beside the kind for cooking? So rock salt, maybe? Smelling salt. That's a good one. Salt lick. You do you, Larry. Salt for melting ice. Fabulous. Epsom salts. Oh, my goodness. You guys are amazing. So all these different kinds of salt are, are basically the same thing. They're all salt, but they all have different characteristics that make them better for certain things. So in Matthew's passage this morning, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. And when he says you, he doesn't mean you and you and you. Like as individual people, he uses the plural you. The disciples gathered here, the crowds, anyone can hear. My best friend went to seminary in Texas, and she said, if you want to up the ante, it's not just y'all, it's all y'all. So 
when, when Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth, he's saying, all y'all are the salt of the earth. Just so you know. Back in Jesus's day, because Jesus was from Texas. Mm. Which one of us went to seminary, honey? It shows. Uh, most of the time he remembers that, so lots of kudos to him. Back in the Jesus day, salt wasn't as readily available or relatively inexpensive as it is now. Salt was so valuable back then that it was actually used as money. It's essential for helping our bodies function. It's literally life-giving. And on small and large scale, salt was used to preserve food, ensuring people were less likely to starve. So salt is literally life-giving and life-preserving. So when Jesus says, you are salt, it doesn't mean they have to become like salt or they have to become salty-er. Jesus says they, the group, simply are salt. Just because they have been created by God and have work to do for the kingdom, they can be life-giving and life-preserving. But then Jesus gives a warning about salt that loses its flavor. Salt doesn't lose its flavor by being left out and getting stale like bread does. One commentator I read about this passage says that salt loses its flavor by becoming contaminated. If it gets mixed up with other things, it can't do what it's best meant to do. So if salt got mixed up with dirt and water, the salt was so impure, the only thing it could be used for was to use on gravel roads to keep the dust down. And that's probably what Jesus is referring to when he, when he talks about worthless salt being trampled underfoot. But it's a terrible, terrible waste of a very precious ingredient. We know that salt is scientifically, it's an essential nutrient in our bodies and we can't live without it. Just like we can't live without the gospel or light, which is where Jesus goes to next. You are the light of the world, he says, made to be seen and to shine as a testimony to others. Jesus doesn't say you have to become light, you have to become more light or even generate the light. Our lightness is a gift from God. So we can work together for the kingdom instead of believing the lie that we're self-sufficient. It's in our life and community, in our neighborhoods, our families and churches and businesses that we can best shed light on what God is doing in the world because we're doing it together. The light is important because of what it shows, what it illuminates. When light appears, we can see it even if our eyes are closed. There's no denying it, like a city that's built on a hill. The very point of placing a city on a hill is for it to see and be seen. So it is with Jesus's disciples and with the church we have inherited from them. In Christ's community, we exist not just for ourselves, but like light, we can show things as they are, and we can witness to the power of the Holy Spirit. We can embody God's love and mission for the world. Ours isn't a purely personal, private religion. The disciples, the crowds, and we are called to let our light shine. And it can, as long as we don't forget that it's not us that generates the light any more than salt generates its own saltiness. We can be like windows that let the light shine through to the world. God is the true source of the light, not just for individual people, but for the whole world. 
So here I think is the disciples challenge. They don't have to wonder or even argue among themselves about whether they are salt because they are. They don't have to analyze if they're if they're light, if their mission matters, because it does. They don't have to try harder to be salt and light. They just have to live into the reality that they're salt and light for the world. And that's our task as well. We are salt and light. We don't have to work at it. We just are. There might feel like a lot of pressure this time of year to be light, like we're supposed to be merry and bright all the time, surrounded by nothing but holiday cheer, when often our lives are more mixed and nuanced than that. So along those lines, as I talk about light, I want to share a few things that friends have sent me in this Advent season, because I think they're really cool. And they've opened my eyes up to what this season of waiting for the light can mean. The first is the Advent devotional called The Season of Waiting, of Waiting, and Waiting, and Waiting. <laughs> it's by a historian at Duke University named Kate Bowler. And she offers some of the ways the contrasts of light and dark have been understood through time. She says, in our era of artificial street lamps, incandescent light available at the click of a switch and glowing blue and red dots blinking from every appliance, we forget just how dark winter is. When the sun seems so pale and far away and the nights are long, our ancestors knew this kind of darkness intimately. In December after sunset, they locked their doors, shuttered their windows and tucked in early. Their folk tales warned them that as Christmas drew near, the spirits of darkness began to range more actively furious at the approach of the Christ child. Witches, werewolves, and evil forces are abroad in the night seeking to harm humans, steal children, and destroy their livestock. Ritual steps were taken to keep witches from coming down the chimney or to keep monsters out of the house. In Scandinavia, families often slept together for protection on Christmas Eve, the peak of evil's power. Right? Darkness seems to always carry a bad reputation, she says, whether literally or metaphorically, it represents the unknown. It's scary. The avoid at all costs. But perhaps, Bowler offers, there are things we can't learn under blazing artificial light that we can only learn in the dark. It takes being outside at night to squint for the stars. But this lack of light will never take us by surprise. We know that we are born into a broken world and that violence and sin are daily constants in life on planet Earth. And we also know that there is an inexhaustible source of brightness and warmth in the person of Jesus, who first appeared to us as a baby in a manger some 2000 years ago, whose birth was preceded by a light in the heavens that guided the Magi. Now, in my mind, not as this only historically interesting, but it takes some of the pressure off to be light, to generate light, to wonder if our light is bright enough. It gets us out of the tug of war with darkness. Christ's words that we are the light, it's not up to us. It's a promise God gives us, but more importantly, it means we embody God's promise to the world. Being light doesn't deny the dark. It means we don't have to fear it or pretend it's not there. 
Because in Christ, we are reminded that we all together are part of God's dawn chorus. The term dawn chorus might be familiar to some of you. It was new to me when I opened up this other Advent devotional another friend showed me. It's titled The Dawn Chorus, an Advent devotional on the wonders of birds, and it's published by Salt House, um, the name of the publisher. Interesting. If you're a birder, you might know about the dawn chorus, but if you're like me and this is a new term, I'd like to read you what it says. Each year in the Northern Hemisphere, as the days get shorter and the nights get longer and colder, the season of Advent arrives. In the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we pray and we light candles and tell the truth about a world full of shadows. We confront the realities of conflict and injustice and we take responsibility. And then we raise up our voices and sing straight into those shadows, calling on Jesus to come again with light and peace and healing in his wings. Songbirds all over the world know a thing or two about singing into the dark. In the wee hours of the morning before the sun appears over the horizon, they begin a great symphony that scientists call the dawn chorus. Birds can sing at any time of day, of course, but in that deep blue space between darkness and light, their songs are louder, livelier, and passionately clear. Dawn choruses usually begin quietly with only a few singers, and soon, thanks be to God, these early birds are joined by others and then still others until the morning fills up with sound and glory. Advent is the church's dawn chorus. It includes silence, shadows, and it looks to the light. We gather together to listen and sing straight into the deepening darkness, proclaiming that in the end, the night will give way to the day. Winter will give way to spring, despair to hope, war to peace, grief to joy, violence to love, and God will come again. Like the morning star in the east or a mother hen, gathering her brood. Here's what the reflection on week one of the devotional, the week when we focus on hope, says about the reasons for the dawn chorus. Scientists have long wondered why birds wake so early, it says, choosing the hours before and during dawn to break out into song. There are many theories. One is that the early morning shadows provide a cloak of protection making it harder for predators to see them as they lift their voices. For our part, when night falls, sometimes we feel afraid, but what if we reframed the shadows of night as a cloak of protection? A kind of sanctuary as we do the slow, quiet work of bringing more hope into the world, praying, studying, connecting, organizing, building relationships, and doing the things that lift our spirits and bring us hope. What if we woke up? put on the armor of God's love and justice and lifted up our voices to sing that the night is far gone and the day is near. The bird the devotional uses to symbolize hope is a red cardinal. During the winter months, cardinals evidently are more likely to flock together because a group that's looking for food is more successful than a single cardinal or a pair. There are several ways a group of cardinals is known, like a group of wolves is a pack. So I'm wondering if any of you know one of the terms that's used to describe a group of cardinals. This one identifies three. 
an inquisition. Interesting. Not according to the devotional, but it could be true. <laughs> Congregation. Congregation, a murder. No. Okay, there's three that this one identifies. A college, a Vatican, oh. or my personal favorite is a radiance. A radi it gives me goosebumps every time I say it. How fabulous is that, right? A radiance of cardinals, the bird of hope. I vote that we start to consider all of God's people as a radiance of salt and light. Amen. Advent means coming to, like Jesus is coming to us as a baby, but it can also mean coming toward, like Jesus is coming toward us, inviting us to participate in God's dawn chorus, offering all that we are to a hurting world. So let's be a radiance of salt and light. Amen. Amen. Amen.